0: what's going to bring you closer to that value? Is it being outside and going on the walk, or is it staying in bed, not doing anything? Mm-hmm. Um, so I always think to people that, you know, when the going gets tough, look within to see what it is that is important to you and what matters and what can carry you through <laughs> the toughness. Oh, I gotta go. I've been working, told them, please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bruh, just leave me alone was on the road but i saw i'm coming home now the drinks on me i think we need a toast see i did it for me now my old friends calling told them nothing for free told me time is money dog why i paid on my feast i was starving for this day now my fan can't eat
1: Hey everyone welcome to another cup of news episode with your host Peter Matt episode 71 here almost on the road to 100 it's always a pleasure speaking and educating you guys and thank you everyone for tuning in and listening to us if you find any value in this podcast please give us the five stars share this with your loved ones this is how we grow the podcast and this is how we keep on continuing to get motivated to producing this high quality content some announcements cup of nurses.com a cup check that out some hot merch there we have all of our show notes anything about us will be there. And also frontlinewarriors.com and frontlinewarriors.shop for anything related to our conscious movement that we're starting. Tune in for that. Our vlogs were continuously growing on YouTube. So thank you all the subs there. We appreciate you guys. Check it out if you want to share beautiful faces. And also the Cup of Nurses group where we engage with our community, everyone that listens to on the podcast that are there, where we're sharing feedback and some some fun stuff
2: there. Tune in. How you doing, Pete? I'm doing great. We have another amazing guest for you guys. It's our friend, Alex Zubek. She has a master's in counseling psychology and is a licensed professional counselor. We dive into some interesting topics such as depression, health anxiety, anxiety, and just finding your inner self. So make sure you guys tune in and check it out. Hey, Alex, thank you for being here for the third time. And you've had some cool experiences and cool news that you... Recently, went through. You got your master's in counseling and psychology, and you recently became an LPC. Can you walk us through that process and why you went into that?
0: Sure. So, in the current state that I am practicing in, which is the state of Illinois, um, in order to be a therapist, you can take multiple approaches, and um, it varies state by state. So, like California, you know, Texas, Arizona, all these states have different. Letters, different forms of licensure that you can get in the state in order to practice in the state of Illinois with my degree in psychology. Um, I have the ability to become a licensed professional counselor. And then after two years of experience, um, you know, I can take another test and get a higher license. So currently in my role, I do have to practice under the supervision of somebody because I am a three letter therapist versus a four letter therapist, which would be an LCPC versus an LPC. Um, and same thing with social workers, for example, social workers in the state of Illinois can also be therapists. So like the traditional, like, you know, you sit on a couch and talk to them, um, You can also have somebody who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. You can have somebody who studied school counseling also take on the role of like a therapist. Depending on, you know, level of licensure and things like that, the state of Illinois does give you several options. Um, And like I said, that varies state by state. So because I had an interest in a lot of like mental functioning, um neuro stuff the psych degree kind of took me in that direction versus um for example social workers they take a look at um things that happen within society that you know cause certain issues um and i'm not saying that one or the other is better because my undergrad degree i have two one is in sociology one's in psych so i have that background from both um but it's just like each each way that you approach this path, you kind of get a little bit more information and something more specific. So I could see why somebody would want a social work degree over a psych degree or vice versa. But my interest took me the psych route. Um, And you know, the natural way that then I would become a therapist was getting that master's degree, getting that internship, and then getting that specific license. Um, And that, you know, I didn't necessarily have a say in the license. It's just that's you know the natural way that you would do it in Illinois versus another state.
1: Okay, What is your day-to-day as an LPC? So when I'm envisioning the process, I feel like it's less of a collaboration like in a hospital setting and it's more of like a coaching sense where you're one-on-one with this client, you see him once or twice a week, whatever the case might be, and you're helping him coach him or counsel him through the process that is ha- that the issue that he's having.
0: Okay, well, that's a really good question. And personally, for myself, it is, you know, a lot of one on one, a lot of meeting with individuals, but that's not um, what I'm limited to. So for example, because I am in private practice right now, um, the expectation is that I work, you know, with individuals on a more private, like one on one basis. But with my degree, I can also work at a hospital. I can work in an inpatient setting, so like people who really need a high level of care that are in the hospital, or I can work on like a partial hospitalization level, so people who are okay enough to go home for the night, but then they have to come back and do like a full day of programming, I can do that. Um, You know, I can work as like a school therapist, or I can do lots and lots of things, but um, it just depends on what it is that you prefer. There's obviously pros and cons to doing a lot of the things that you can do as a therapist. Some people thrive within that structure of being at a hospital. So, in the hospital, it's not just the therapist by themselves. They're interacting with the people who fight for insurance benefits, which unfortunately is a thing, um, the doctors, the nurse practitioners, um, you know, the behavioral therapists the uh, dietitians, whatever it is. So there's certain areas where you do work with a th- team. But in my private practice experience, yes, I have people that I reach out to. I have a supervisor. I have a group of colleagues that w- we meet with once a week. But it is more individualized. It is a lot more independent. And a lot of people do have that opinion that it's very um, lonely Um, in private practice. I I personally don't have that experience because I have a lot of friends, um, a lot of my colleagues, you know, we talk to each other on a daily basis, sometimes like hourly, if we need the support, if we need to, you know, get something out of our system. Um, But a lot of people who have their own private practice, for example, and they just work by themselves doing everything, they don't have that like system or support group to reach out out to.
2: And you said with being an LPC you work under somebody with four letters instead of three so that person you go to to kind of brainstorm ideas on how to help somebody or how, to, how does that work? like you need their like approval to take therapy in a certain direction?
0: Um, so yes and no um, a lot of the way that I work, my four letter trusts me enough to, you know, go in whatever direction I go in. And they never question that. But it's just the fact that I have them in case I am stumped or in the case that I come upon something in the therapy room that I've never had experience with. I can reach out to them. I can ask them for suggestions. I can ask them for like literature that I might need. Um, Because every, and, I know there's a big misconception that when you're done with school, you stop reading, you stop learning, but you know, outside of the mandatory continuing education, therapists do a lot of research on a day-to-day basis. So I'm constantly reading books related to my patients, related to my cases, Um, You know, I strategically try to read at least one to two research studies a week on new findings in the mental health field because I want to implement new and trusted practices in my work and not just keep doing the same old, same old. Like if there's something that, you know, people are finding is more helpful than the thing I've been doing That's why I'm doing that research and that reading, because I want to help my patients in the best way possible and be up to date on, you know, new cutting edge technology. And um, it's not just like we found one thing that works, so we're just going to stick to it. There's always room to improve our practices.
1: So since you're always at the um, forefront of technology and advances of research, what is like the state of the union when it comes to mental health? And I know the last time we spoke, you mentioned 9-11, how it brought people more together because there was this commonality, common goal to unite and fight off this terrorism that's happening. So you mentioned that COVID would actually bring people together because that we have this one common enemy. Is that something you still stand by as a statement or do you <laughs> think that changed, especially with what we're seeing in polarity?
0: Um, well, I think that is a really good question. And... I would say that in terms of what I'm seeing right now, I'm actually seeing that like we're coming together, we are working on ourselves, and we're working as a unit with our family, with our friends, to take this thing on. I am seeing a lot more people reaching out for help. And instead of isolation, I'm seeing a lot more connectedness and seeing a lot more people reaching out. Now, yes, I understand that social media, the news, you know, media in general is putting on this narrative that people are becoming very divided and people are becoming very polarized and, you know, you're either on this crazy extreme or this other crazy extreme, but in terms of like the individual day-to-day things, I am not seeing that. Um, I am seeing people recognizing that, you know, life is short, like things are happening, disasters, whatnot. And it's better to do this with a team, like our family or friends, rather than challenging this on our own.
1: Okay. And what are some commonalities that you see when it comes to mental health and issues that your demographic of patients are experiencing?
0: Um, I am seeing a lot of major depressive disorder and a lot of anxiety. So because of the pandemic and just how the way it has rolled out, I'm seeing a lot of people with this need to have some sort of control in life when they have been experiencing the exact opposite, which is having no control at all. Um, just remember when we first started hearing about COVID and about these restrictions that we started getting put in place, um, it really shook people to the core who like to have things planned out. Like, you know, I'm going to take a vacation in July or I'm going to be able to do this, this, and this. With the pandemic restrictions, with, you know, different mandates, different local, um, you know, governances, not laws, I would say that a lot of people... Lost that ability to plan into the future. And this has kind of made those people who tend to run anxious in the first place, even more anxious. And now, you know, they're not able to sleep. They're constantly on the edge because they don't know what's coming next. And they're not okay with that.
2: So then with, with anxiety, are you seeing an increase in, like, health anxiety in people? And if you could explain a little bit about health anxiety.
0: Yeah. So health anxiety is an actual interesting topic that I'm sure you guys can resonate with. Um, because the healthcare system, you know, it, it is being kind of taxed right now. And with health anxiety, so let me start off with health anxiety is just... Um, being not okay with, you know, small aches or pains or constantly being worried that something's wrong. Um, going to the doctor for all these issues that seem to not be connected or make sense. You know, when somebody has this like alphabet soup, like presentation, when they go to the ER or they're constantly going to their GP and like, Saying, hey, I need this CAT scan, I need this MRI, I need this x ray because I think something's wrong. There's actually nothing wrong. Um, You know, it's people like that that are overwhelming the healthcare system. Um, And unfortunately, What happens because there's not a lot of communication, like interdisciplinary communication, you'll have somebody who's being treated by like six or seven doctors because they're not getting this information that they want to receive. And they're just looking from it from every other doctor they could find. Um, So not only is health anxiety thinking that like there's something wrong and being worried that, you know, you might have some horrible disease that just hasn't been discovered, but it's also kind of the way that you structure your life so that you're avoiding a possible disease as well. So certain people will not go to crowded public places, not because of just like COVID anxiety, but in general, they're worried about, you know, catching like strep throat or pink eye or whatever, even though the likelihood of that is so slim, they're changing their whole life around because they're so worried about this idea that they might get a disease or something like that. So health anxiety comes in many different forms and fashions but um it does become clinical when you're not able to do the things that make you happy or the things that you need to do because you're so worried about your health
2: what is it is there like an explanation for this like where it stems from is there people that are more kind of predisposed to this like you mentioned control are people that seek control or have a lack of control due to like covid or whatever's going on in their life are they more prone to this because in like a in like a way, it's dumb, kind of controlling their their symptoms, right? So, is this like is there an explanation for why this happens?
0: So, you know, it could be multiple reasons. What I have found is that there's not one singular way that you develop health anxiety. And, you know, there's just more people who are sensitive, people who tend to become overthinkers or people who are just um, highly in tune with their bodies. Every single little ache or pain could become, you know, a tumor or, you know, maybe they have MS or whatever. Like it just spirals into this big big thing, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. Health anxiety can, um, you know, come from anything and not having a clear cut answer to where it comes from is okay because the way that we treat it tends to be the same no matter what. So going off of that question, like where does it come from? A lot of the times when we see people, we don't know. You know, we can't specifically say, hey, this one time that this happened is why you developed this disease disorder, this, you know, condition, um we can't just pinpoint it, but that's okay because we don't need to, because we know that there's a certain way that you would treat this. So as long as we know how we're going to approach it in terms of treatment, the why is not necessarily as important. Like sure it helps, but imagine like, you know, you found out why something happened in your life. Does it really change? everything else moving forward like if you overcame this big issue in your life you overcame it who cares why it happened right
1: that's a very good point so it's somebody having this health anxiety and anxiety is a huge pandemic in our country how do you troubleshoot somebody or how do you help them manage this anxiety that they're experiencing what assessment tools are you using or criteria to base to help the person figure out the how
0: okay so just like a nurse would um, kind of determine how somebody is doing their activities of daily life, right? Like um, I start off with asking the questions of how is this impacting you on a daily basis? Um, You know, how often are you worried about this versus the average Joe? I like that question a lot because it kind of puts things into perspective and not a lot of people are asked this question. Like, Um, You know, you could be a worrier, but you could just be an average person who worries like you worry as much as your mom worries or as much as your sister worries. So it's about average. But if you ask somebody, are you worrying more often than the average person? And you know, sometimes they say yes, that just opens up another box of questions that I ask. Like, how often would you say you're worrying? How many hours of the day would you say you spend worrying about this? How um, does this worry impact those activities that you're expected to perform? Do you find that you can't pay attention in school attend to like your chores if you know you're talking to someone younger or can you not hang out with friends can you not do some of the things that you like to do because you find yourself worrying so those are the kind of feeler questions that I start off by asking and then you know I go on to more um, as soon as we start developing a little bit of an understanding a little bit of a relationship I kind of start to ask like what would happen if you weren't worrying you know like how how different would your life look like if you had this time back or if you had this under control um so that helps us create like a treatment plan and what we're striving for so it's important to know like yes this is this is bad but how do we know what good looks like as well
1: so it seems like and i'm kind of trying to put a perspective of a nurse it's you have this this ease that's causing problems in the person's life and then he tells you all these symptoms that this disease is causing. So, mm-hmm. well, we don't what well, we want, we don't want to put band-aids on these symptoms. And right. we can, and we could start that way. You can start, you know, taking away the symptoms so he feels better, but how do you get to the core of that individual's problem? How do you stop the disease from causing the symptoms that are affecting his daily life?
0: So, a lot of the therapy that I do is based on act, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. And a lot of people come into therapy because they're kind of at their, you know, end of the rope and they seem to be able to like not come up with any more ideas. Like there is no other thing that they can do to help themselves to do the things that they want to do. So I begin by asking them, what is it that you want to do? What is it that you know, therapy will help you achieve. What's important for you to do um, that you want to do on a daily basis? What do you value? What kind of person do you want to be? And then those values and those things that are important to the person, um, we work on sitting with some of this pain, sitting with some of the anxiety, um, dealing with the uncomfortableness because in order to do what it is that's important to them, They have to put up with a little bit of this discomfort because, you know, we like to think that if we push all the negativity and if we push all the discomfort out of our lives, life will be easy and great. But growth and a lot of, you know, doing what's important to us, that uncomfortability comes in between where we are now and where we want to be, you know, in the future. Or it comes between what we're doing now and what it is that we value doing. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think pain is a very good indicator because even if you have like a broken body feature like in leg, yeah, you can keep taking these narcotics that are going to take the pain away. And we have such a negative stigma with pain. It's like that uh, false positivity that we kind of say, well, life always has to be positive. Well, this pain is giving you an indicator of how much you can push your body. So this week, you know, you could push yourself, let's just say, 25% 25% non weight bearing. And next week, if you still keep taking articles you don't know that now your body's ready to take on 50%, right. 75%. Now you could be 100% without non weight bearing, you know? Yeah. So, how does depression play into this? Because I know anxiety and depression have like this bi yeah. dimensional level. Is it depression that causes anxiety? You feel like or is it the other way around where this anxiety gets so bad where this person gets halted in his life which causes the symptoms of depression
0: I mean, of course it could be either or, right? Like you could come in depressed and then develop anxiety or vice versa. But just personally, and this is, you know, has nothing to do with stats or data or whatever, but just what I've been seeing in my office is people who are anxious already, like super anxious, they can't do what it is that they want to do and then develop depression because they're limiting the amount of pleasurable activities that they're doing in their day-to-day and they're kind of um, stuck in their room they're isolating because they're feeding into that anxiety which is then causing them to you know be a little bit sadder and sadder every single day or there's things that they're really passionate about that they're no longer able to do because the anxiety has such a hold on them and then you know this depression this low line. constantly low sad depressed mood starts developing and that kind of takes you know a hold in that person's life and it's really hard to break when you have anxiety telling you you shouldn't do this thing and then depression telling you you know you don't have the energy to do this thing as well
2: Mm -hmm. because like an average person they go through periods and cycles of anxiety and depression before like entering like a you could say like the the deep hole of it what are some like tips or advice you give somebody that's suffering through like the seasonal depression or just like anxiety in certain situations so it doesn't turn into that that ginormous hole
0: yeah So I think that's a really good question, and I think that a lot of the times when you see somebody that was always active and outgoing and, you know, pursuing things that they're passionate about, when they are no longer doing those things because they're letting the depression kind of creep in and uh, cover more and more of their life, Um, it's really important to keep doing those things no matter how hard it is and no matter how painful, right? We just talked about that pain and that discomfort. So no matter how uncomfortable it is to do, you know, your morning walk, um, because you'd rather stay in bed and leaving bed would cause discomfort and, you know, maybe some pain or whatever it is, some anguish, just go on that walk anyway, because the walk in the end will make you happy or happier than you were, you know, in bed and also you're going on that walk because it's bringing you closer to, you know, whatever it is that you value. So maybe you value being outside, maybe you value mother nature, maybe, you know, you value being athletic or whatever. So what's going to bring you closer to that value? Is it being outside and going on the walk or is it staying in bed, not doing anything? Mm-hmm. Um, so I always think to people that, you know, when the going gets tough, look within to see what it is that is important to you and what matters and what can carry you through the toughness
2: so like doing exercise and doing things you like it releases endorphins you know boost dopamine all that stuff but before you prescribe medication how do you kind of figure out if somebody could just kind of be treated with just like talking emotional expression going through experiences and what's like the like like the border of, hey, we gotta put this guy or this person on medication.
1: And, and before you answer, Alex, it's kind of
2: <laughs> it's kind of interesting
1: mm-hmm. because we have this natural pharmacopoeia that our body's releasing. You keep you keep mentioning that go for that walk because endorphins are going to be released. So we have all these chemicals in our body to do this task, but somehow because we stop doing the activity, we just mask it and have to put a bandaid on it. Hey, take this SSRI because it's gonna give you this neurochemical effect where you can do that from a runner and it gets released, right?
0: Yeah. So there is obviously different situations when it comes to medication versus therapy and you know it's never the same and it's never like a hundred percent certain that like if this happens we're doing meds or if this happens we're doing therapy a lot of the times what ends up happening is somebody is seeking help so they get medicated and the medication gets their functioning up to a certain level but when they're at this level of functioning they're like I want to do more I know I can do more so then they seek you know the talk therapy or whatever it is but it's also vice versa. Like I'm seeing somebody, you know, that maybe has an issue with ADHD and yes, I can give them all these tools. I can give them all these strategies and we can practice doing all these things to focus, to stay on top of stuff. But if, you know, I feel like they can benefit from it or if they feel like they can benefit from it, why not try the medication to see if um, you know, the two prong approach is going to be helping them fulfill more of, you know, what it is that they want to do rather than just using the therapy. So there's never just one way of doing it. And there's not a cut and clear boundary or a line that we say like, oh, if you cross this line, you need meds, or if you cross this line, you need talk therapy. I think, of course, in an ideal world, having both is the most beneficial because then you're kind of like tackling things from like the internal, you know, messing with the chemicals and whatever, but you know, also the emotional, the cognitive stuff as well. So yes, I I always, 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 even if a patient tells me that they're anti-medication or, you know, they don't want to try medication, I do have them at least try to have them meet with a psychiatrist just to get evaluated, see what the psychiatrist thinks because psychiatrists are taught, you know, things differently than I am. So maybe they can pick up on something. something and having a treatment team rather than just one individual treating you that also gives you you know more benefits because there's two different heads two different set of eyes two different people that see you in two different settings that can pick up on some of the things that are happening
2: are you noticing any kind of trends or certain issues like depression anxiety that are kind of more prevalent now that you kind of haven't seen before
0: That's a good question. So I'm seeing a lot of trauma, Mm -hmm. trauma responses to certain things that have been happening. For example... Um, nurses or people in the field experiencing trauma from seeing, you know, people dying on a daily basis, an hourly basis, people who have been intubated, right? People who came in to the hospital fully okay functioning and, you know, COVID just, they deteriorated so quickly. They thought, the person was going to make it and then they haven't like that is a pretty traumatic event. And I'm sure you guys can speak to this more than I can, but just think about the patients that you, you know, maybe saw coming in and they were completely fine. They were okay. Their level of functioning was not bad. And then, you know, they got intubated and then that's it. Like they never made it past that. Um, And I know we, I think we mentioned talking about this, but there's a lot of burnout when you, Um, Don't get to see somebody succeed or when you don't get to see somebody recover. So for example, if I was working in a hospital setting where we were just bringing people in to get them stabilized and then kind of sending them on their way to their next step, that to me would cause a lot of burnout because I only get to see this person at their lowest. And then, you know, we kind of patch them up just to get them going into another treatment setting, but you don't actually get to see this person flourish. Mm. And I think what drew me to private practice was being able to have that time to develop those relationships, to develop that rapport, to actually see my patients getting better versus, you know, we just do like the crisis kind of setting where like we have somebody come in from, you know, the ER or the ambulance or whatever, we get them good enough to, you know, function on a daily basis. And that's it. Like, I have no idea what happens after that.
2: With like PTSD or like trying to break someone's fear or, or traumas, do you use like cognitive therapy for them or what's the approach to those?
0: Uh, so I am actually interested in EMDR. Mm-hmm. Haven't done it yet, but I know that the... So I what guess, is EMDR? EMDR is eye movement... Are, is it eye movement desensitization? It's a, it's a weird therapy, right? Like weird, because people, a lot of people say that it doesn't work. A lot of people say that it does work, or it's too good to be true. A lot of people have this idea that um, it's not supported by enough data, or there's not enough clear cut studies that have been making this, you know, like, why is this actually happening? We don't know, you know, the mechanics behind why it's happening. But Um, I, I think, you know, from what I've heard in the field and from people who have had this sort of therapy, nothing but good things. So that's something that I'd be interested in doing, obviously with trauma work and being a trauma certified therapist, there is certain things that you have to include in your work. So making sure that it is a very, um, small, trusting, tight knit, you know, community or, relationship that you have with your patient because trauma, you do need that safety and you need that accountability, reliability. Um, What is traumatic is how quickly things change and, you know, what trauma does to you. So you don't want to go see a therapist and develop this relationship and then, for example, your therapist then says, hey, I'm going to go on a three-week vacation. Um, That's not going to be beneficial to the person who has suffered a traumatic event because then sort of severance in that relationship and not having that accountability, reliability doesn't feel good. Of course, understandable. So, um, you know, just making sure in my work with people who are impacted by trauma, I'm not hundred percent trauma certified working on it, but you know, just doing trauma informed care, making sure that it, we provide the safest, most comfortable environment. And we do have that accountability and reliability. That's the backbone
2: with the uh, eye movement therapy. I think that's has some validity, and I'm not sure. Have you ever heard of like red light therapy? But like even when we sleep, like REM sleep, it's like rapid eye movement, and there's still like brain uh, activity going on with that. So I'm sure there's going to be ways to kind of figure out how your when your eyes move. Maybe they could, you know, reprogram some of your brain.
0: Yeah, so that's actually, you know, what they do in this therapy. We're trying to reprogram some of these things. We're trying to desensitize you, walk you through the trauma, and actually, you know, have you be okay with, yes, this happened, and, you know, now we're better. We can handle this. Like, you made it through this. Um, just desensitizing people to some of these events. But just think about how hard it is for somebody to handle trauma, and then how much harder it is to then go to a therapist and have to relive that trauma all over again, and then kind of discuss the trauma, the response. Um, Trauma work is so difficult, and it is very successful if done the right way. But there is a piece that we are missing and that piece is, you know, breaking down the stigma and getting more and more people into our doors. And there's also that connection with, um, substance use and trauma, you know, self-medicating because we had this traumatic event happen in our lives and now we can't handle it. And the only way that we get a break or we feel good is by indulging in certain substances. Um, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there as well.
1: What are some like traits or values that this person needs in order to overcome this trauma or this PTSD Um, example would be maybe gratitude, right? Like he, maybe gratitude is a bad term, but (laughs) openness, openness, let's just say, yeah, like even though things are happening, he has acceptance of it, right? Because if you never accept it, you can never move forward and then you can have let's just say gratitude so what are like maybe those values or traits that this person needs to learn to adhere to to cope with the trauma and move on
0: so a lot of people that cope with trauma or that are struggling with some sort of traumatic event they think that they don't have what it takes right so um you know it it kind of hits them in a way where like, oh my God, this thing happened and now I don't know how to process it and now I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. But the reality is that everybody has what it takes to cope with that trauma and maybe they just need a little bit of help kind of pinpointing those things or bringing those things forward that would make it easier to cope with the trauma. But like I said with the values thing, you know, um, if your traumatic event is putting you, you know, more and more distant away from the things that bring you joy or the things that make you happy, make you feel good. The values thing is always important because you want to look at like when you strip all the things away, like if you strip the gratitude away, if you strip, you know, everything away, what is it that's at the core of this person? Um, You know, what is it that this person wants to be known for? Or, you know, if you were to write like a, speech. If you're giving someone an award and let's say, you know, Matt or Peter getting an award for something. And the way that I would describe Matt and Peter is, you know, they're, they're healthcare workers. So they're very helpful and they're nurturing, right? So Maybe your trauma gets in the way of being that nurturing person, but it's something that you value to the core and it is so, you know, deeply resonating with you that you want to be known as that person. What are we going to do to bring you back to being that nurturing person? Okay.
1: So what are some practical advice for people that are listening on the show? Maybe three or five questions you can ask yourself maybe on a daily basis or weekly basis to assess your own mental health and to know where you are or maybe you're and how to get there
0: also a good question so um a lot of the times, I don't even know if we can start with those questions because just think about how many people are straight grinding, you know, every single day, every hour of the day, right? Like the nurses or, you know, the people in the healthcare field or the people who are doing all these things to make it in life. How many of these people are so overscheduled and so occupied, they don't even have a chance to check in with themselves, right? So my first question would probably be to ask, you know, to have somebody ask themselves, like, how much time am I dedicating for myself? And that time because I know the nurses are going to say, well, yeah, I'm dedicating, you know, 40 hours this week to myself to help with the podcast or help with the business or whatever. Not that. Like time to self-reflect. Time to, if you're into it, meditation. Time to, you know, just make yourself feel pleasant. Um, And I get it. You have a sense of satisfaction and happiness that you get from your work. But this, you know, outside of your work, this is just pure time for yourself. How much time Dedicating for yourself to check in with your feelings, you know, with your functioning on a weekly basis or a daily basis. Um so that's question number 1 and then we can kind of move on from there because let's say your answer is like 0. I don't check in with myself. I don't even know what that means. Well, then we have a problem because a lot of people don't have the education like yes in schools right now we get that social emotional functioning that education and like feelings and stuff like that that the good, you know, schools have incorporated into their curriculum, but let's say that you don't have enough psychoeducation to know how you're really feeling, you know? So that, is just a follow-up question, like what, you know, what am I doing? How am I feeling? All those questions, if you don't have the vocabulary, the knowledge to answer those, that would be something that would, you know, be important to work on. Let's say you need a class or you need some education on finding out how it is that you're feeling or how you're doing because you know, you don't know that. You don't have that background. You've never been taught to actually tune in with your feelings or put a word or a number or description on how you're doing. Um so that would be kind of the second question. Do I even have the emotional vocabulary to answer, you know, to myself how it is that I'm doing to gauge how I'm doing. And then question three would obviously be the thing that I kind of repeated in every single episode that I've been on is, am I getting adequate sleep? Am I getting adequate nutrition and movement in my life? And I know that there's a lot of holistic life coaches out there who, nothing wrong with those people, but a lot of people who just preach movement, nutrition, sleep, Um, And I think for anything that's wrong with a person, you know, a person with a broken leg, for example, or a person with, you know, any sort of thing under the sun that's happening. If you're not getting those three bare minimum things, then you just think about Maslow's pyramid, right? Like how can you move up a level into a higher level of functioning if you can't pay attention to something because you haven't slept or if you're starving yourself, Or, you know, if you're eating things, and I'm not going to sit here and tell people to only eat whole foods and all that because I know life doesn't work that way. Right, right. Um, But, you know, no judgment for that. But, you know, let's say that you're consistently eating things that don't make you feel good, right? Um, And it's bringing you some sort of anguish or turmoil and you're not doing anything about it. So you're constantly eating this bad food. You feel bad about it. You think about it. Then it makes you feel even worse. Right. Right. So just think about those. And then um, the movement piece, which is, you know, one of the most important pieces. If you crave movement, if your body craves being outside in the sun, which as a human being, it should for at least 10, 15 minutes a day. um, If you're craving that, but you're not getting it, then, you know, how do you imagine you can function? How can you continue existing if that vital piece that you know would make you feel fulfilled is missing? Mm
2: -hmm. There's a lot of like negative stigma associated with like therapy and seeing a counselor. And the first step, obviously, is to have that person come to the office. But the next step, next step will be to get their 100% effort and their honesty. So how do you get somebody to, to open up that might have came into the clinic, but is still kind of iffy on expressing their problems and their emotions and, and still struggles to be open and give you their 100%? Because you can't treat them properly they don't give you their full honest opinion and their few honest viewpoints on themselves so how do you kind of establish that relationship
0: well um i will try to tie it into nursing and the hospital for example um when you are seeing a patient uh they have their privacy for example so like Maybe minus the ER, which even in the ER, you have a little curtain or whatever next to their bed. But if they know that they're in a private environment where whatever they share is not going to be told to anybody else, right, that's helpful. Um, But You know, even HIPAA, for example, so the health information protection, like the way that I explain to my patients is that whatever is confidential, you know, in this room, everything's confidential, minus the thing about harming yourself, others, right? So people that know that their stuff is not being shared, um, whether it's with healthcare workers or with counselors, that is something that helps. Um, Building a relationship is important. Mm -hmm. So somebody has to rely on you to be accountable, be reliable. Um, that helps because if they know that they can consistently see you on a weekly basis and you're always going to be there for them and that you're going to take a non-judgmental stance on whatever it is that they share with you, that is the biggest part of the relationship. And you know, there are even some therapists that have said, um, you know, some philosophers and people from way back in the day, that if you have that relationship with a patient, nothing else matters. Now, you know, maybe that's not the case right now. And, you know, we know more, whatever insurance companies aren't just going to fall for that one. Um, But there are a lot of people who believe that if you have this trusting working relationship with somebody, you don't need to do anything else because everything in your team effort thing will fall into place so you'll end up covering those challenging things you'll end up working on the depression the anxiety as long as that relationship is there you trust your provider and um you're getting feedback they're a good listener and that non-judgmental stance
2: i'm always curious about like your clients and your, and your patients is there anybody that like sticks out to you in your past like, that you've kind of helped with or are currently working with
0: um, so obviously due to confidentiality, um, I can't give the you know the most details, but there are definitely patients who I work with that have overcome a lot right And my biggest thing is right now that I see a lot of people who I tell them that they have lived a very big life in a short span of time. So what I mean by that is let's say that you know you have this, 12 year old, for example, and this 12 year old has dealt with the pandemic, dealt with moving, dealt with a new like mental health diagnosis, dealt with their parents' divorce, dealt with like their best friend dying or something like that. Imagine all those compacted events into a very short period of time. And then imagine this 12 year old trying to work through all those things. It's like, all these things are happening all at once, their head spinning, everything's happening, they cannot make it stop. So how do we create space for them to feel safe and space for them to heal and, you know, work past those things. So a lot of my patients and a lot of the people that all therapists are working with, because if you add the pandemic on top of regular daily life things that are happening, it's so much happening all at once. And, you know, there doesn't seem to be a place where, children or adults or anyone suffering from all these things they can find that safe space to kind of talk about it because it's like well if everybody else is dealing with the pandemic or if all my aunts and uncles or if all my cousins are dealing with divorce then why do i need this safe place right Mm -hmm. well you know that train of thought just leads me to say like hey maybe those other people are dealing with it in a different way but maybe you need more help or more structured time to deal with it so it's okay to need that space Mm -hmm.
1: Going back to question number two, how do you develop that emotional literacy so you can put your feelings into words and you can learn how to express yourself?
0: So a lot of that, you know, of course, there are books that you can read, plenty of books on the Internet, plenty of YouTube videos that you can watch about um, emotional literacy and um Expressing and feeling and stuff like that, but a lot of it is checking in with yourself, maybe even writing stuff down. So, let's say you have a very big, powerful feeling. And, uh, you know, you feel it in your chest, you feel it in your gut, you feel it like in your fingertips, for example, your heart is pounding, Um, a lot of things like that help you be in tune with yourself and with your feelings, because we, you know, we can get a better understanding of the feelings that we have by checking in with not only our, our head, right? Like our brain, but also with our body. Um, just seeing how it is that we respond to these feelings, how these feelings present to ourselves. And yes, you do have to, you know, know the words for explaining the feelings because, um, there's something that I use in my practice called the feel wheel. And I like to put a few words in the, uh, in the word prison as I like to call it. So when you're sitting in the room with me, there is no I feel good or I feel bad or I feel annoyed. Because what what does good feel like? Good isn't a feeling, you know, it's just a descriptor word for like a quality somebody has like, oh, this is such a good dog, right? Like what does good mean in terms of feelings? What does annoyed mean? What does bad mean? We need to take it a step further. And a lot of people don't have that emotional literacy and that emotional intelligence and that, that capacity to explain to me that, they're feeling frustrated or they're feeling betrayed, right? Like those feelings that we can work with because, you know, now we can kind of challenge like, hey, what is it that's making you feel frustrated or betrayed or lonely? But when you say that you're feeling sad or upset or like those words don't give me much Mm -hmm. and they're just the bare minimum. And unfortunately, a lot of people that we see you know, in their early 20s or whatever, they don't have anything past that. Because not only in school was it not really taught, but then in the home, it wasn't really taught to ever say, you know, the exact thing you're feeling, because nobody would deal with it right Mm -hmm. like you wouldn't tell your mom hey mom as a five-year-old you wouldn't say hey mom i'm frustrated because i couldn't get you know this ice cream even you told me that i could get ice cream after i finished my homework right like nobody ever says that Mm -hmm. they just say you know i'm angry and then storm off into their room and like what does angry mean anything could mean anything
2: it's almost it's literally like you're peeling off layers of, of the onion like for for nursing for example when someone says hey i'm in pain like okay i know you're in pain it's very broad but is it a sharp pain where it's located because it it's like mental pain when they when they go through depression or, or or those anxieties so it's crazy concepts to, to think about how long do you, do you usually how long does it usually kind of take off for somebody to kind of start seeing improvements is it does it take a few months a few weeks do they come see you every day like what's the process <laughs>
0: So the process varies on the severity, right? And the sort of level of care that they're in. Because, for example, I know you guys know about F codes, right? And you know about the different uh, differential diagnoses that you can have. But there is not just one depression, right? Like you don't just have depression. You could have major depressive disorder with reoccurring episodes, and those episodes could be severe. You could have major depressive disorder with one episode, and that was a mild episode. You could have something like dysthymia, or you can have, you know, bipolar disorder with... Low lying mood swings or things like that. Um, So it just depends on how severe it is to begin with, where you're being seen, for example, because if you go to the hospital, you know, you're taken by the ambulance because you're feeling suicidal, it might be a very short period of time that it, it, you know, that you're given to be stabilized and be okay enough not to be suicidal and, you know, go on to the next step. Um, and you know, it could be a short few days and then the more work you do, right? Like the bigger piece is then getting you to function and shower every day and brush your teeth, right? That might take more than a few days. And then, you know, the step after that would be like, okay, are we attempting to do the things that bring us pleasure in our life? You know, that might take a few weeks. So it just depends on severity and it depends on which, practitioner or what level of care you're being seen at i'm sure it's the same exact thing for you guys like if you're being seen in the er if you're being seen in the icu you know if you're being stepped down right like there's different levels of getting better that you're seeing in different levels of care
1: thank you for explaining that (laughs) alex it's always a pleasure talking with you and learning knowledge about psychology and diving deep we're looking forward to seeing you again and chat
2: soon Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me.